In The Great Gatsby, personality is described as an unbroken series of successful gestures, whilst Kurt Cobain said that he used bits and pieces of other people's personalities to form his own. On this episode of the History of Advertising podcast, we are looking at the personalities of businesses. Namely, what is the difference between a product or service and the brand that is associated with it? A product is something made in a factory. A brand is something bought by people. It is what human nature imbues an object with. The beginning of a brand is simply to say, we the makers are pleased to put our name on this. And if you like it, you'll know how to buy it again. And if you don't like it, you'll know how to, how to avoid it. Described as Adland's greatest philosopher, Jeremy Bullmore is a former director and now advisory board member of Holden Group Behemoth WPP. His writing is considered essential reading for all students of the theory and practice of advertising. Some people find it almost impossible to, to believe that, a, that an object, a, a washing powder, a, a cow, has a, has a personality. And yet they do, because we people invest just as we do a bit with dogs and cats and guinea pigs and gerbils, we invest personality traits on brands. People find it perfectly easy to say, I'm very fond of that brand. Now, how they grow is all to do with what public presence they have. There are many ways to boost this public presence of a brand but perhaps none quite as effective as a well-targeted advertising campaign. Rory Sutherland is Vice Chairman of Ogilvy UK and a behavioural science expert who has spent the best part of his career researching the advertising opportunities in consumer behaviour patterns. He believes advertising is a key tool in the brand building arsenal because it offers a statement of intent. We look for these cues in the environment and go, well, if he spent five million quid on advertising, he would only have spent that money if he were confident that the product was going to be widely and repeatedly popular. Because if he didn't expect a long, uh, you know, a re reasonably long and popular future for his product, he wouldn't be prepared to sink that amount of money in advertising. It's like betting on your own horse. It's a visible, costly mark of confidence. In order to see this in practice, we're now going to have a look at one of the most recognisable brand names in the UK. Friday wrote Mr Kipling a fancy dress party for my nephew, for which I created something rather fancy. My exceedingly delicious French fancies. They match the occasion rather well, with their colourful fondant and their frills. And as for the light cake and delicate filling beneath, it must surely have won a prize. Uh, had there been any left to judge. Mr Kipling is one of the most beloved names in the bakery aisles of all UK supermarkets, and it became the UK's largest cake manufacturer by 1976. However, the much-adored Mr Kipling never actually existed. The brand was the end result of a cunning scheme by ad agency JWT and food business Rank Hovis McDougall. Jeremy worked at JWT at the time Mr Kipling was created, here, he recalls receiving the initial brief. They said to the agency, we mill a lot of flour, which we then sell quite cheaply. And what we really like is a high margin range of product that used flour. In other words, that, add, that added value to that flour so that we made more money out of it than just selling it loose to other bakers. 
and we put forward a recommendation to them that they should invest in a new range of packaged cakes. In fairness, Mr. Kipling is by far from the worst brand for fabricating a story. Ted Baker doesn't exist, neither does Aunt Bessie. Frankie and Benny's was first opened in Leicester in 1995, although the brand's fictional story claims the chain started in Sicily in the year 1924. American lifestyle fashion brand Hollister is perhaps the worst offender of all. John M. Hollister never existed, but this didn't stop Abercrombie and Fitch from giving him a degree, a wife named Meta, a son called John Jr., and an apparently incredible talent for surfing. Brands are constantly creating personalities to sell their products. One of our main questions for Jeremy is why they decided to make Mr. Kipling a man. Surely a female creation would have worked better for the product's largely female target audience. Well, apparently that was not the case. There was a certain furtiveness about buying packaged cakes at all. Cakes really had been how Granny made them, how Mummy made them. The phrase shop-bought cake said it all. She's the kind of woman who buys shop-bought cakes. You know, that. So these were going to be shop-bought cakes that had to avoid the stigma of being shop-bought cakes. And we slowly learned that if a male was thought to make them, this was not nearly as much of a threat as if a, a woman made them, because people knew that bakers, master bakers, were men. And in discussion groups, you'd get women saying, well, I suppose, yeah, I suppose. I mean, if he didn't have to make breakfast for the kids and get them to school and make sure they got their pencil case and then bring them home and make them, I suppose if he didn't have to do anything like that, he could probably, he could probably make quite good cakes, yeah. That was what led us to a male personality. The next challenge for Jeremy and his team was a thorny one. How do you bring a fictional character to life? Because when you name a, a brand, your first thought is, well, we must have, we must show Mr. Kipling. Um, and then you think, well, even if you find a very good Mr. Kipling, he's going to get older and he might get up to bad habits and he might find himself on the front page of the news of the world because it is and you are risking the future of that brand on one person who can hold you to ransom. I mean, if he's really successful. Or you could do a drawing of an imaginary Mr. Kipling, but in that case, that's not real. So we thought that individuals will pick on any clue they can in any communication to form views. And I thought, if we have a voice talking about Mr. Kipling, who sounds as if it might be Mr. Kipling's voice, they will see that as the epitome of, the, of Mr. Kipling himself. It's totally illogical, irrational, but I thought it would work. So we hired a wonderful actor called James Hayter, who had been using for other commercials, who talked about Mr. Kipling in the third person. So nobody has ever seen Mr. Kipling, nobody's ever heard Mr. Kipling, and almost everybody, when you have group discussions, knows what he looks like. Thursday, wrote Mr. Kipling, amateur dramatics in the village hall. And oh, dearie me, amateur refreshments too. So that night at home, I took some cherries and almonds, walnuts and sultanas, and devised my almond slice, my cherry walnut slice, and my spicy country slice. At the next rehearsal, 
the cast declared them to be exceedingly good cakes. Mr Kipling retained its exceedingly good style of ads for several decades, showing how important it is to stay consistent when you are a brand leader. The late Judy Lannan was appointed by renowned ad agency JWT in 1968, and shortly afterwards she established its consumer research department. Here she explains why consistency is key when you are a brand leader. What we realised is those brands existed because they, they really never dramatically changed their advertising. They developed styles of advertising, feelings about it, um, an emotional core to these brands. And it was, it was just changing the advertising dramatically. It was just suicidal. And so a lot of the research that I did, a very great deal of research I did, was ensuring that you were still in the right territory and you didn't do anything too dramatically um, because there was no need to do anything dramatic. And I think to some extent it was quite frustrating to certain creative people who constantly wanted to break barriers and break um, rules and so forth. But um, it just, it, it was not intelligent. Jeremy agrees that the intelligent move is often to focus on brand nourishing instead of brand building. Now, when a brand is known, it, it gains, I find it useful to think of it as a kind of warmth. And like all warmth, over time, that warmth can fade and decay. So when people talk about building brands and growing brands, I think it's at least as important to realize that brands, like batteries, they need to be topped up. So much advertising isn't helping build a brand, it's nourishing, sustaining an existing brand, and it's still money well spent. So, once you have built a brand, the key to maintaining awareness lies in nourishing its personality through consistent and considered messaging. If it ain't broke, don't try and be too clever. Some of you may be wondering what happens when a brand's personality needs to be changed. Well, join us on the next episode when we'll find out how the end of the Second World War forced a change in brands' personalities. And also, we'll be taking a trip to Mars. Meanwhile, if you are interested in finding out more about the role research plays in advertising and brand building, visit the History of Advertising Trust on patreon.com. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com today, where you can access an exclusive episode covering off this very topic. The History of Advertising podcast was presented by Jack Maggot Phillips and featured contributions from Jeremy Bulmore, Rory Sutherland and Judy Lannan. The programme was produced by Jane Jarvis and Jack Maggot Phillips. To find out more about the adverts featured on this programme, please go to hatads.org.uk.